Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is April 30th, and our chapter for today is Ezra chapter 3. Now, just to give you some background, in chapter 2, you have the delineation, the marking of all of those who came from Babylon. When you look at the entire chapter, it can be summed up in verses 64 and following. This is chapter 2. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and that makes approximately 50,000 people. They had 200 men and women singers, and their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now, this is an amazing statement that if you're not careful, you will just read right over. The people had been in Babylon and they had been prospering. They had done exactly what Jeremiah the prophet told them to do when he wrote them a letter. You can read this in the book of Jeremiah. He wrote the letter and it is recorded there. And he said to them, I want you to pray for the city where you are. I want you to pray for the country. I want you to pray for the leaders. Because if the city does well, then you will prosper. If the nation does well, you will prosper. And so he asked them to settle in because they were not going to come back for a while. You see, the Babylonians did not enslave all of them. They allowed them to prosper in their own country so they could bring in revenue to the uh, nation itself and to the king. And so the Jewish people from the time of the Babylonian exile were never again until modern history known primarily for their agrarian culture, that is their agriculture. They were known as merchants and as business people, as those who had prospered and done well. And that all arose out of this Babylonian captivity and this exile period. You see, even in exile, God blessed his people to the point to where they became a very prosperous people. Now, we know that because of what I just read to you. These verses describe a very affluent people. They had not only horses and camels, which were very expensive, but they had mules. Now, the scripture says that their mules were 245. Now, that means that they were among those who were the most affluent in Babylon. Why? Because to ride a mule, you had to be a king, a prince, or a high-level business person, or someone who had great connections and a network, or you couldn't ride a mule because only dignitaries did that. Only the wealthy did that. 
And then in verse 68, it says, Some of the heads of the fathers' houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, they offered freely for the house of God to erect it in his place according to their ability, which must have been significant. They gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas. Now, that was the currency of the day. It was the coins of the Persian Empire. 5,000 minas of silver. That's about 6,300 pounds, the best I can work it out, of silver. Now, that's a lot of silver. All of this was to do the work of God. So the priests and the Levites and some of the peoples and the singers and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all of Israel in their cities. Now we come to chapter 3. And when the seventh month had come, now this is the month which is the civil new year. It is a very significant month in the Jewish calendar. The first month, of course, is the beginning of the spiritual year. It is when we observe Passover. That is when God said, I want to meet you. I want you to never forget what I have done for you, who I am, from where you came and where I'm going to take you because I'm going to do exactly what I told Abraham and David I was going to do. And so this now is the seventh month and the children of Israel were in the cities and the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. There was great unity, great harmony among the people and their leaders came together. And the first thing that Joshua, the high priest and his brethren and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and his brethren, the first thing they did, even before the foundation of the temple was laid, the new foundation, they built an altar to God, and they began to offer burnt offerings according to the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, why would they do that before they even laid the foundation of the temple? Because they know that it is without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The people were back in the land by the grace and mercy of God, and they wanted to show their appreciation by building an altar and sacrificing to the people. And it says, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. In other words, they began to carry on the regular work of the priesthood and they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles at his written and they offered daily burnt offerings and the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings and those for new moons. You see, every month when the moon went dark, it's called a new moon, when there is no reflection whatsoever, that is the beginning of a new lunar month and they were to offer sacrifices and all of these scriptures, what they're simply saying is that these people were doing the best they could to get back on track. They had repented of their sin. They had called out to God, and God was honoring that, and they were showing him they were serious about what they were doing. Now, God knew their heart. Not only did they need to do that before God, but they also needed to do it as a witness and a testimony of their grace that they had received and their faithfulness and repentance. 
You see, God knows our hearts. And so people say, well, why do I have to do anything? Well, why did Abraham have to take uh, Isaac? God knew what he was going to do before he did it. Not only did God know it, but Abraham needed to know it. It was going to be a testimony for those and a legacy for those who would come after. You see, much of what we do, we do to honor God, but we also do it as a testimony of faith. The reason we're baptized, it's not that God doesn't see our heart. It's not that we're already not already saved. Of course we are. This is an expression of what's going on on the inside, which somebody cannot see, except we express it openly, visibly, audibly. In some way, we write it, we sign it, we shout it, we sing it, we act it out. That's what baptism and communion, the Lord's table is. It's nothing more than the drama of redemption through the carrying out of the Passover meal that expressed itself to believers, followers of Jesus, Jewish people, and then later Gentiles as an act of obedience and showing trust and faith, showing his death till he comes. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So every time we take the Lord's table and we observe the Lord's supper and we take communion, we're showing the Lord's death till he comes, his substitutionary death that he died in our place. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, not for himself. And then baptism completes that, showing a death, burial, and resurrection, burial, and resurrection, burial, and resurrection. And so the two together, that's why we only have two official ordinances or orders that we keep as followers of Jesus, because the gospel is complete and sufficient. And so this is what it does. It shows the two together, his death, his substitutionary death, his burial, and his resurrection. One is incomplete without the other. And so God wants us to express that. Does God know our heart? Of course he knows our heart. And just like he knew these people's hearts, but what did they do? These sacrifices didn't save them. They were expressions of faith. What we do in Jesus' name doesn't save us. It's expressions of the fact that we're in a relationship with him. And so the Bible says that they consecrated everyone and they willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month, that is Rosh Hashanah, as we call it, as the Jews call it today, the head of the year. Yom Teruah is the Jewish name for it, the day of the trumpet blast, the day of trumpeting. And it says, although the foundation of the temple had not been laid, and they gave money to the masons, the carpenters, and uh, food and drink and oil to the people. In other words, the generosity of the people was evident for all. And they did like David and Solomon, and they went to uh, Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had had from Cyrus, king of Persia. This is exactly what David did. This is exactly what Solomon did. This is the way that Cyrus did it. Now it says in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, that's Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all of those who had come out of captivity from Jerusalem began and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Now, I've said this all the way since Torah, since the first five books of Moses. I have showed you consistently that 20 years of age is the age of manhood. It's not 12 years of age biblically. I don't care what any rabbi says. This is the age 
when a person becomes a man. It is 30 years of age when a person can become a priest. And this is why Jesus waited till 30 years of age. Why? Because he fulfilled the role of priest. He was he fulfilled the role of prophet. He fulfilled the role of king. And that is what the anointing was all about. He was the fulfillment of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Those were the three offices that were Mashiach, that were anointed. And so this is very important that we understand this because there is a different accountability after age 20 all the way through the Bible. Verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. In other words, they had their official clothes on and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively. Oh, my goodness. I've been sharing with the church that I lead and teach and responsible to and for before God. I have said to them, we need to sing antiphonally, responsively. We need to read the Word of God responsively, antiphonally, so that our voices are back and forth with each other. Why? Because this is the way we learn, and this is the way the Word of God gets inside of us. And they were praising and giving thanks to the Lord, and this is why He said, for He is good. This is what they said, for He is good, and His hesed endures forever toward Israel. For he is good for his hesed, his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. And when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house was laid, this is the reason they were doing it. You see, every, oh, Lord, help me to make this clear. Every building project, small and great, needs to be accompanied with praise and the reading and singing of the words of God, because it reminds us that we didn't get there on our own. We got there by the grace, the power, the mercy, the goodness, the generosity of God Almighty. So any building program, any special day, yes, there should be offerings. Yes, there should be praise for those who are bringing the offerings. But it has to be a time of celebration and praise unto God. You do that through reading and singing his word. And so it says, but many of the priests, listen to this, verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers of houses, these were old men who had seen the first temple. See, this was 2016. It's only 70 years later. So some of the people who were teenagers or maybe older, they would only have been in their 90s or 100. And many people lived to that age, just like they do today. Many Jews that were part of the Holocaust that are still alive today they are in their 90s or over 100. I just read the stats the other day, last week, getting ready for the Yom HaShoah, the day of burning, the day of remembering, the day of sacrifice. When Jews all over the world and those of us who love Israel remember those who gave their lives, over 6 million, 2 million of which were children under the demonic regime of Hitler, who died at the hands of Mussolini and Stalin, on and on we could go. It's just horrible. Many of them that are alive today are like our World War II vets. They're in their uh, 90s or they're uh, over 100. There were a lot of people there that were still alive. God had kept them alive. And the old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. 
And the reason they were weeping is, is because of the diminishing of the temple. It was diminutive compared to what Solomon's beautiful temple was. And even though they were rejoicing, they were weeping because they realized that the glory that Israel had had now passed and they're being brought back. But it was like a starting over again. And so it says, yet many shouted for joy. This was a wonderful day. So there was weeping that it was not what it once was, but there was joy that something was going on so that the people could not discern between the noise of the shout of joy and the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. How we need to once again have it said of our churches, they sang to the glory of God. They wept for the loss. They wept for what could have been. They wept on and on about us. Would to God that would happen again. Robert Baker in his book, The Southern Baptist Convention, 1845 to 1972, tells a story of how that in the early years of Baptist, what later became Southern Baptist, that it was often said you could hear them singing a mile away. Oh, God, give us a new day when once again the heartfelt songs of joy and praise will come from the mouth of Baptists and evangelicals of every stripe. And once again, we will praise you, the God of heaven, as we walk on the way. This is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at TonyCrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.